when I got thrown out of Harvard in May of 63, uh, that was a powerful moment in my life because I was doing what I felt to be true. And uh, even though uh, the whole social system was telling me that I was wrong. Hey everybody, it's Raghu back with Ram Das here and now another episode. And before I get into it, I just want to call out again, as I've done many times in the last few months, uh, with our uh, great supporter and sponsor of Be Here Now Network, BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp.com is an online therapy platform, and they match people up with therapists according to whatever is needed by the by us as individuals and uh, it's yeah it's really difficult getting with a uh, therapist in in a physical situation for many reasons mostly demand so betterhelp really.com absolutely provides a service that's so important for us to be able to get out of ourselves the emotional um clogging and anxiety and depression, all of it, to be able to talk to somebody about it is extraordinarily important. So a uh, call out to betterhelp.com. Go to betterhelp.com slash Ramdas and you'll get a discount. The other thing I wanted to mention, which is really in the same line in terms of what are the things that we can do that help us on a day-to-day basis, get through some intense times. And the other thing is the Ramdas Fellowship. And uh, there's many different fellowships from BIPOC to LGBTQ to um, there's one in Spanish. Uh, we're starting one around business and spirituality with our Google friends. So there, there's quite a few different um uh, themes of people getting together and just being able to share. It's all about satsang community. And we also, on a monthly basis, although uh, this summer we're taking a break in July, I believe, and we'll be back in August, uh, where we get esteemed thought leaders and teachers talking on uh, in, in different subjects and different themes and uh, explicating them. We just had Sharon Salzberg, by the way. You can go go to ramdas.org events. You'll find where you can replay. I mean, Sharon's thing on mindfulness and meditation was phenomenal. Please check it out. and gives you an idea of the kind of uh, uh, experiences that one can have through the fellowship, both in gathering with like-minded people and in being able to partake in, in these fantastic talks from different teachers, which also has a Q&A component. So do take advantage. These are both things from BetterHelp.com to Ramdas Fellowship. You go to ramdas.org slash fellowship and you'll get a lot more detailed information. There you go. So this is... Uh, <laughs> I'm just looking at some notes and they're like... Okay, the proposed title is When Acid Meets Beer. I love that. 
Yeah, so because this has a lot about what Ramdas went through at, at Harvard and getting thrown out and uh, being a good guy, then a bad guy, then back to a good guy once he became a yogi. Uh, there's some really, really cool historical stuff in the way, of course, that Ramdas characterizes it is precious, absolutely precious. Um, I did want to point out a couple of things. And uh, by the way, some of these things that I do point out, uh, obviously I'm repeating what's in the talk because I feel like these are things to look out for and they bear repeating their really uh, important thoughts and and give birth inside us to other uh, reflections. So um, here you go. This really, I, I was there then to the late 60s, early 70s. And, um, and of course, many people from that era look back on this, ah, that was just naive bullshit love and truth and all that. Um, but the we did feel, and this is what Ramdas says, that the inner feeling that love and truth were powerful and enough to change the system. Um, and what we captured back then was a, a return to a sense of innocence. And we just assumed that its power and its truth would ride over everything. Little did we know. Um, and, and the interesting thing here is with Ramdas, uh, well, of course he said love and truth are, are the realization that are very frightening to people that have vested interest in things that are based on injustice, inequality, power, right? And, um, he, the interesting thing that he does say here is that, um, and he's, uh, you know, we, I, I remember talking to him directly about this before he died in the years that he was in Maui. He just, just that the 60s were a precipitator of what the conservative movement and the fundamentalist movement that is so um, dividing in this country right now. Uh, he, he said, we entertained the edge of anarchy and chaos as the creative moment in a way that they couldn't handle. It just scared the living, you know, what out of them. And uh, so we are in the center of this right now in terms of, uh, I think I said on a podcast, maybe on mind rolling some time back, because I'd heard this aphorism uh, about living in these kinds of times of, of intense chaos and... Uh, the Chinese have, have this aphorism for it, which is, um, how did it go? These times are a dangerous opportunity, isn't it so? Dangerous opportunity. And Ramdas says, if you're interested in awakening, in spiritual awakening, this is the time when Shiva, the god of destruction, really is dancing on everyone's head. This is an extraordinary time for inner work. See if you can keep any, any sort of equanimity in a situation like this. Um, and, and also he addresses the polar, he really in this talk addresses just everything that, you know, what's going on with the environment. And here in this particular, 
part, it talks about polarization. I mean, we are so polarized. And that's, he says, what we did in the 60s. We were the good guys with truth and love. They were the bad people with fear and contraction. And he said, that's not good enough anywhere. I have no idea in the world of how we cut through this except in dialogue. Uh, and I, I could only think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the way in which he always says, we are all the same. We want love. We want to be heard. We want compassion. And finding that commonality is is our work. Um, very difficult, very difficult. Um, and he said in this thing, which is why I think it's so amazing, we got a tremendous amount of heaviness in store for us because of environmental, social problems, etc., the breakdown of social system. But it's a creative moment. It's whether, it's whether or not that's a dark moment or that's the moment of transformation. Transformation is in a rose garden. Uh, so here he is with the full talk and all of the wonderful uh, mapping out through his uh, deep understanding about what about what we went through back in the day, 60s and 70s, and where we are now. And the now, this talk, I believe, was recorded in, oh, not long before he had his stroke, uh, 94, 94, so just several years before the stroke. Uh, and uh, it, it could he could have been projecting to 2022. He really could have, even though he's not with us for the last couple of years. Uh, he knew what was going on. So that's it. That's what's going on here at Be Here Now Network. And this is Ramdas Here and Now. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Ramdas. And um, listen to all of the other wonderful podcasts that we have going on. Check it out. See you next time. Uh, hello, this is Duncan Campbell, your uh, host on Connections. And as uh, was mentioned earlier, uh, we have a very special guest in the studio with us today, Ram Das, who is a person that is known to many of you out there, uh, formerly Richard Alpert in a previous incarnation, and um, someone who's been very influential in my own life since I first met him about 25 years ago. And we thought that today uh, we might take a slightly different and special tack on having him here on the air with us and perhaps revisit some of those days in the 60s when um, the transformation took place from Richard Alpert, Harvard professor, into Ramdas, who has now become one of the leading, if not the best known um, agent, if you will, of uh, communicating the wisdom of the East into the Western culture and, and forming a kind of uh, interweaving of the two. And so I thought we might start today by recalling Ramdas the time that I first met you, which was when I was in Harvard Law School. Uh, I believe it was in the spring, April of 1969. Uh, there was a very small meeting, unpublicized, held in a classroom somewhat off uh, the beaten path at Harvard, where you were appearing for the first time since you'd been fired by the university for the experiments with LSD with Tim Leary six years before. And I remember walking into the room, it was about quarter to nine at night, and uh, you were sitting cross-legged on the table where the ordinary professors normally sat behind it in a chair, and you were dressed in white, and people were around you, where there were candles, and you began to speak. 
and that was about nine o'clock at night. And by the time you finished, uh, you had talked until about three in the morning. And uh, we were all enthralled and story after story cascaded out. And all of that ultimately went into print and was shared with thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands as your book, Be Here Now. And I remember walking back to my apartment near Harvard Square about 3.30 in the morning and getting into bed and lying awake for quite a while thinking that what I had just heard about your experiences in India was truly as marvelous and wondrous as uh, I suppose were the tales of Marco Polo when he first came back to the West. And uh, they certainly were not in our paradigm of Western thinking. But there was something so genuine and so authentic about the way you had said it that I just thought I've got to somehow meet this man again and, and pursue this. And so weeks later, I went up to your farm in New Hampshire, your father's farm, where you were camping out and a number of people would come up and see you every Sunday as you gave darshan or sermons, I guess we'd call them in the West, and sharing your experience. And so I, I've always been curious, you know, what it was like for you coming back to Harvard University, that citadel of Western thought for the first time after six years, and beginning a journey that has now been followed literally by hundreds of thousands of us around the U.S. and the world. So maybe a little kind of story about how it felt to come back and, and what was going on with you that night. Well, good morning, Duncan, and good morning, everybody. It's nice to be here. Um, when I got thrown out of Harvard in May of 63, uh, that was a powerful moment in my life because I was doing what I felt to be true. And uh, even though uh, the whole social system was telling me that I was wrong. And for a few years after that, when I went through Harvard Square, I would get very emotional because I would rehearse what I had lost. I had lost my tenure and my future and all that. And then I'd run it by against what I was experiencing. And I think what I'm experiencing is more valid and true than what I had before. And after about two years of grieving, I really got over it. So by the time I had gone to India and tasted something more profound, more profound than that, um, and came back, Harvard was, um, uh, kind of insignificant to me. So coming back that evening was a, f a delight, but kind of an empty form. Um, Tim and I did it again in, uh, in 1983 on the 20th anniversary of being thrown out. And Dave McClelland, who was the guy that threw us out, introduced us at the, we got Sanders Theater, which it looked like Harvard was sponsoring us, actually. Uh, we just got the theater, so... That was different. That was fun. That was mm -hmm. uh, fun because it, it had a kind of a rebellious quality to it. Well, it's so interesting because I think these are still the same themes that are true for all of us, you know, to pop forward a moment in time before we go back and, and pick up this theme from the 60s. You and I were both just recently uh, in Killarney, Ireland uh, last month, May of 94, at the International Transpersonal Association Conference Toward Earth Community which brought together a number of people from the spiritual disciplines, the psychological disciplines, the science disciplines, uh, political activists, and so on. And Michael Toms of New Directions was there, and I remember in his presentation, he said that if any of you out there are even thinking about leading a kind of life that's not part of the dominant culture, you are already in the margins. And if you are in the margins, that's where the creation of the new paradigm or any kind of transformation is going to come from. And so don't look for confirmation from the dominant culture. That was the main that's message great. 
Yeah, That's and great. it was very interesting because it it's hard out there when you are uh, seeking truth, as you were then and are now, and the same for many of us. When you start to proclaim the truth that you know in a culture that, in some sense, to use current jargon, is in dysfunctional denial, uh, of course, the change agent is often the object of uh, not only uh, criticism, but often outright hatred. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There was a moment when um, there was a press conference after I had been thrown out, when all of the press, the television, because I was the first professor thrown out of Harvard in 6,000 years, and <laughs> there were all these uh, television and, and, and interviewers, and I remember they all looked at me as if I had just lost the big fight because I had taken on Harvard, and I was going to end up in the gym sweeping, you know, mm -hmm. and... I remember that collective feeling that I had lost and inside the feeling that I had won. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm a psychologist. This is psychosis when you think <laughs> one thing and everybody else thinks something else. But the inner validity of it was so profound that I thought, if this is, then so be it. Because this is more true than what it is that they are holding on to as their definition of reality. Well, that's, that's <clears> wonderful <throat> that you say that because I remember I was in Harvard Law School at the time, which was even more than being in Harvard College, you know, a sense of really being at the heart of the establishment linear logical view and uh, feeling very much the same thing that you felt that as these um, other awarenesses were, were calling to me that uh, there was a sense, well, it's almost like an either or, either I'm crazy or they're crazy, yep. you know, and then wanting to transcend that, but having to go through that very difficult transformational moment where, yep. as you put it, you had to find the internal validation in the face of this external non-comprehension. And it reminded me recently of um, Klaus Nobel at the Earth Summit told me that Schopenhauer was, uh, the philosopher was fond of saying that truth always emerges in three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then it is violently opposed, and then finally it is embraced by the establishment as its own. And uh, I noted that in October of 1992, Galileo was formally pardoned his heresy by the Catholic Church. <laughs> well, I won't hang, but that was an item in the New York Times. Yeah. <clears throat> it's so. interesting to go from being a good guy, which was I was when I was a Harvard professor, then becoming a bad guy, a druggie. Then becoming uh, yoga from the East was pretty weird, so I was then a weird guy. And now I'm back being a good guy again. And this is very funny. I mean, I'm now so legitimate. I get invited to all these really conservative conferences. And I figure, listen, share the Dharma wherever, it, wherever the opportunity arises. You know? well, that's <laughs> but great. It's, it's not as much fun being a good guy as a bad guy. I must admit that there is a little fringe benefit in playing with the edge. <laughs> Well, actually, I've got a little treat for you today that um, I pulled out of the few photographs that have survived my moves over the years from being a straight guy to a hippie guy back to being a straight guy and a somewhat hippie guy and uh, that whole kind of thing uh, in terms of outer form and inner reality. And what I found was a picture of yourself on your father's farm in New Hampshire on the grass out there in 1969, which I thought I'd share with you here. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There you are, wow, the wow. very long hair and in Far the out. serape with your wasn't white. Wasn't I pure? Yeah. You were oh, very pure. wasn't I pure? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Look at me now, how corrupt I've got. <laughs> <laughs> That's so yeah. beautiful. Isn't yeah. that beautiful? Sure, I'd yeah. follow that, man. Anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And this was in the days when we'd come up and we'd say, well, gee, Ram Dass, you know, like, 
you have come back with all this wisdom from the East. What should what should we do? And, and you would say things like, well, what should I tell you? Run around the farm for three times and come back and uh, do, you know, sit-ups, you know? And it was very funny. And I also remember at that time, I, too, was making a transition. And here's my picture, you know, where I was painting the fence down at the... Uh, at the foot of the path there at your father's farm and just beginning to grow the beard there, you know, that uh, ultimately became considerably longer wow. as did my hair and, and, and whatnot. <laughs> and uh, there, you're right about being the bad guy in a sense that there was something, you know, kind of invigorating about having a community of other people who were also pushing the edge and exploring it. A number of us went to Woodstock festival that summer and that was a big transformative event for me as well, because I, I just remember that, some of the things that were going on there were uh, so extraordinary in terms of the normal paradigm that I felt that more transformation was happening in that weekend that could happen if I worked for the Alliance for Progress for 20 years, you know. Yeah. And one particular moment struck me when Canned Heat was playing in the afternoon and uh, uh, people started craning their heads and it turned out that a young woman had taken off all her clothes somewhere down by the hog farm and people were kind of looking, but then this young man took off his clothes, kind of skinny and had a big, uh, you know, kind of purple uh, Afro uh, white man and, and little glasses. And he just started dancing like Pan throughout the entire crowd of 500,000 people all the way up to the back and around. Mm. And he started coming down through these people who were, uh, you know, drinking beer and had baseball caps and T-shirts and looked like they were, you know, not going to be receptive to this sort of energy. And I remember shying away thinking, oh. This is going to be terrible. And you know, I hate the sight of blood, you know. And he danced right through magically. And uh, he went all the way down to the stage. By now, he's about three or four acres away from his clothes. He'll probably never see them again. Canned Heat's playing. He's grooving. Everybody's grooving. And I thought, this is really extraordinary. Yeah. You know, this, this, this example of letting go. It's when acid meets beer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good. That's very good. Yeah. It was... Uh, it was something that you and I had talked about before, which was the um, the inner feeling that love and truth were powerful enough to uh, change the system, and that the purity of that kid at that moment he was he was doing something that children can do and then adults can't do. You know, he mm -hmm. was doing that thing that was innocent, and we had. What we captured back in the 60s was a return to a sense of innocence. And we just assumed that its power and its truth would ride over everything. Little did we know. Little did we know. And I think that's actually kind of the interesting segue into, into what did happen after that. I remember how, uh, as you put it, looking at your picture, how, how pure you were in those days. And in a sense, uh, we all had that kind of Parsifal purity of heart of, you know, questing for our truth and for truths and thinking that if only we could bring that back into the public sphere and proclaim it, that there would be a kind of general celebration of the culture and we would all transform together. And yet, uh, of course, as we know, things turned out very differently. And uh, it seems to be taking not only considerably longer, but now uh, the question is, you know, what will happen? I, I remember when I was in Russia on August 20th, on the night of August 20th, on the barricades in Moscow. I just happened to find myself there uh, historically and uh, how powerful the celebration was the following day being outside the White House, hearing truth emanating from the speakers way, way up on the balcony and people actually smiling and laughing in the street below all around me 
when in Moscow for 10 days before that, people didn't even look at one another in the eye. And there was this wonderful, powerful sense that consciousness was expanding and it was going to yeah. move out. And here we are three years later with a kind of sense of deflation of that energy. And uh, what are your thoughts on well, that? Well, in a way, I think it's it's a, a very interesting moment. Um, uh, Prague was an example of this. The, I came the year after Prague was free again. And the joy and the artists out and the musicians, and it all felt like it was going to happen again. And then a year later, when I went back, the economic realities had struck. And there was a kind of a depression. And the personality... The deeper cultural personality structures had emerged once again after the kind of euphoria of the transcendent moment had passed. So um, what do I hear now? Um, first of all, I think that it isn't innocent now. I think, and I don't think it's naive like it was in the 60s. I think the realization is that truth and love are very frightening to people that have vested interests in things that are based on injustice, inequality, you know, a whole lot of issues. And that uh, that w everybody isn't going to roll over because if you haven't had the experiences that validated the true power of truth and love, you were still motivated by fear and you want to do the best you could to hold on to your stash and play king of the mountain. And uh, I think that we in the 60s were as much a precipitator of the right, the conservative movement and the fundamentalist movement, as the conservatives were. I mean, I think we we entertained the edge of anarchy and chaos as the creative moment in a way that they couldn't handle, that it just scared the living everything out of them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's interesting because that pendulum swing, which went for 20 years now, mm -hmm. is now coming back again. But the predicament is whether the kind of liberal or the whether liberalism and truth and love are the same thing or not. And that's the issue with Clinton and, and that whole scene in the White House at the moment. Very much so. Yeah. It's like, did we make it finally? Mm -hmm. And uh, but it's interesting. Or has it been co-opted by the system has so it been thoroughly yeah. that we don't even recognize it anymore? Well, that's its interesting moment. I, I was uh, writing to a fellow uh, named uh, Dreyer who writes speeches for Clinton in the White House. And I said, is there any space in the scene at all? Is there any reflectiveness or is everybody reactive? Is there any, uh, are there any people that don't have power capacities that are just there to hold the vision or give space? And he wrote back and he described what it was like there. And it was like being in a Vietnam foxhole. And I was like <laughs> saying, are you having Buddhist meditations when these people were dodging whitewater and this and that and all these bullets coming at them all day long? And it was really interesting. I realized that if we wanted to play with worldly power, we had to be so disciplined and ready to do that, that we could handle those kinds of forces when they came, the, you know, the Bob Doles and, and all of them, you yeah. know, all these kinds of things. Who cried at Nixon's wedding. Yeah. 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 I mean, his funeral. As his me. funeral. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, my sense is we are much tougher now. And we're much more ready to deal with the realities of the. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm working to deal with the kind of centrist position of Clinton, without closing down my heart to the possibility of change. And uh, I think it's it's a tougher, more interesting time. The energies are much higher. It's much more scary because of the environmental imminence, the the kind of way we're destroying the environment. These are all. Forces that we didn't realize back in the 60s. We, we only had the bomb then. 
Now we've got the bomb plus all right. these things. So if your jaw, if you're interested in awakening, in spiritual awakening, this time when Shiva's really dancing, this is an extraordinary time for that inner work to see if you can keep any deal of equanimity at all in a situation like this. Especially when you try to take your truth into the outer or civic sphere and you run into exactly what you're talking about, you know, the kind of intensity of response of the uh, consciousness that is invested in stasis. Um, Gene Houston likes to talk about the evolution of consciousness and of society going from stasis to hyperstasis before it then goes into kinesis and then hyperkinesis when the actual transformation takes place. That's interesting. And then back to stasis so that in a sense... At the moment, just before the change, things are going to rigidify and become even more hostile to what are, from our point of view, seemingly innocent, straightforward statements about, well, if we're going to yep. get well, we first have to acknowledge yep. that something's wrong here, and here are some things that are not entirely straightforward, that have been uh, deceptive, whether by design or by unconsciousness, and we need to first realize what's true, and then we can start moving to, to make uh, the appropriate changes. And then by being the spokesman for truth, just like Schopenhauer says, first the response is uh, ridicule, and then second, violently yeah. uh, But opposing. I'll tell you, I think that we got to watch those metaphors a little bit, because this time around, either everybody goes or nobody goes. It's not enough to polarize again. That's what we did in the 60s. We were the good guys with truth and love, and they were the bad people with fear and contraction. And that's not good enough anymore, really. Uh, and I think that um, that whatever that, like I have on my puja table, my little holy table, a picture of Bob Dole. And every morning, you know, I say, good morning to Buddha and Christ and my guru and mother and Ananda Maima and all these things. And then I say, hello, Bob. And I can watch my heart contract when I say that. And I see how much work I have to do to keep him a member of our family. Because if the family doesn't hang together at this point, everybody goes down. That's what, at this point, it's the tobacco industry versus the, you know, it's the, it's, it's the good guys and the bad guys. And that's not good enough. Well, I think, you know, a lot of us have, you know, sort of gone beyond the good guys and the bad guys notion in terms of, of um, uh, view. But still, it's very difficult, even if you come at the public realm with the attitude that you've just described, um, not to evoke, you know, a, an oppositional or confrontational response, much as, you know, Machiavelli just described the process yep. by saying that if you're a change agent, and interestingly enough, this was quoted by someone at the university who recently, um, you know, had some difficulties in his administration over there at the business school. And uh, ideas that he wanted to bring in in terms of change were, were not received well, and there was a lot of controversy. And he quoted Machiavelli saying that uh, when you're an agent of change, the people that may benefit from the change that you're proposing are very slow to come to your support because in part they're not even clear that it is in their benefit yet. And the people who feel that they're in the least bit threatened will immediately and with tremendous hostility uh, try to crush uh, sure. any, any movement in that direction. So even if your intentionality is to keep in the family, if Bob Dole perceives you know, that something's yeah, this happening This is about here. two levels of consciousness. I mean, at one level, you oppose somebody. But there's a way, like when Gandhi said, I, the, the British have to leave India, but I want them to leave as friends. There are different levels of play with other human beings. And you can get into a, an us relationship with people and then say, us has to face that at this point, it's you against me. But if you've established some other level of connection with a person, and I think that's where we may make stands, but how we make the stand is the issue. 
and whether we close our hearts. So learning how to say no to somebody without closing your heart to them is a very, very profound spiritual teaching. And I think that's, in a sense, uh, really all we can do as individuals. And then our fate will either turn out to be that of Gandhi or that of Christ, that of Gandhi or that of Martin Luther King, because certainly Martin Luther King and Christ, you know, held the same value of nonviolence and nonpolarization. And yet, as Albert Schweitzer said about Jesus, that incredible metaphor that Jesus pushed his shoulder against the wheel again and again, and it did not move until finally he threw his whole body on the wheel. And as it incrementally began to move and turn, it crushed him underneath. That's a great image. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Who's that? Schweitzer? That was Albert Schweitzer, quoted by Michael Ventura in his piece last year in the LA Weekly on Christ. Boy, I'd never think Schweitzer would come out with something that good. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 So in a sense, you know, one adopts that that uh, view of trying to create equanimity and to be able to survive the, the even um, unintentional or unaware controversy or confrontation that the truth itself can yeah. evoke. Yeah. Um, and it then really we see what the, the outcome is. Level, it's you do something and then somebody reacts. And then what you do next is interesting. And how deep your equanimity and connection to your truth is depends on how loving that next response can be. Mm -hmm. These aren't one action. Right. They're sequences of actions. And they can de-escalate the affect or they can have increments of affect. And that, in a sense, I guess, is a, a beautiful expression of the new definition, we might say, of the path in the 90s, because looking back on it, uh, of our, our kind of pristine and, and rather pure naivete, it's almost like Blake's songs of innocence, then songs yeah. of experience and songs of innocence regained, you know, and we've been through the experience, yeah. the wars, as yeah. it were, in the last 20 years. And I yeah. remember just a funny story here when I was, uh, again, at Harvard Law School, just right after I met you, I remember uh, we were up several times to visit with you on your father's farm. And I even did that 10 day or nine day fast over Rosh Hashanah with you and so on. And, uh, I came back and I thought this man Ramdas has by his journey and sharing it with me, saved me perhaps 10 years of exploration, which might've gone further into LSD or other vehicles that now it seemed like we could short circuit with meditation. You have that formulation that, uh, you know, if you take an external chemical in order to induce a um a state of openness to the universe that you do go up but then of course you come down and the suggestion was if you did a more organic practice like meditation you could gradually incrementally sustain uh a a movement of consciousness which could flower and unfold like the lotus over time and so i remember reading in aldous huxley's perennial philosophy that there were three ways that you could get to that sense of openness or unfiltered enlightenment you know seeking truth one was hallucinogenics, the second was meditation, and the third was understanding the cognitive structures and imprints that arrive very quickly as we enter into life. So I looked through the Harvard catalog, which was about two or three inches thick for a course that I could take as my elective at Harvard Law School to complete my journey, having tried the other two poles of the tripod. And um, I found something in the psychology department that said, uh, cognitive structures, so on and so forth. So I went to the instructor who turned out to be a graduate student. And um, I told him I wanted to take the course and he looked at me somewhat baffled and he said, well, no, why are you wanting to sign up for this course? You know, you're in the law school. What are you looking for? And without any irony, I earnestly said, truth. And he looked at me totally bewildered. And <laughs> he, was, he, he was literally <laughs> speechless. And then he said, well, Maybe you should try the philosophy yeah, department. Uh, that's great. That's great. That's great. <laughs> and, and it was a wonderful yeah. moment because he was yeah. 
completely ironically, you know, earnest yeah. and, and unintentional. And I realized that, you know, there was something very powerful right here in the citadel of the search for truth of the great Harvard University, which was the um, power of the social system, the need to survive, yeah. the yes. need to have a job, the need to write a monograph. And somehow that search for but the more essence. more interesting, Duncan, was that the, the Harvard was full of the high priests of the intellect and the assumption that the intellect is privy to special truth is a fallacy but, and that's and i was basically coming on to a tennis court with football cleats ramdas hold that thought we've got to go to a special test at this moment that's we'll right. be right back with you ramdas let's pick up again after this test of official information uh you were saying about the uh, privileged position of the intellect and, and what that means in our culture i was uh, i think that harvard was right to throw me out because i was um going on to a tennis court with football cleats, that non-conceptual, <clears throat> the truth doesn't have form. When you come into form, you're coming into relative truth. And if you're searching for truth and you touch it, you touch it with being, you don't touch it with knowing. And Harvard had no place in that institution for that kind of wisdom as opposed to knowledge. And it was, it was very threatening to the high priesthood of the temple of knowledge. So that was the issue around truth. The question is whether truth is uh, an identity with, uh, with analytic intellectual mind or not. Well, you know, that's extremely interesting that you say that because what I, what I see coming up is it's a question of skillful means. That in fact, in the beginning, there was a certain kind of uh, naivete. There was not an intention to necessarily provoke or Epate uh, le bourgeois, although that might have mixed in there a little later. There was just a sense of, well, this is so interesting. I want to share this, and and not realizing how threatening that could be yes. uh, to someone. And what I'm reminded of is Gregory Bateson came here to Naropa Institute in 1974, the same summer you were here, and you and I did that uh, wonderful panel with Trungpa Rinpoche and John Baker and Jim Green on psychology East and West. And I also did an interview that summer with Gregory Bateson, and he told me a beautiful story like yours of being at Oxford and finding the place somewhat rigid and sterile and claustrophobic. And so he took a year off and he went off to Dutch New Guinea or whatever the island was, and he worked in the native culture for a year. And, and he found himself and he opened up and became a kind of authentic, integrated being. And he came back with great joy to Oxford to complete his studies. And he was at the table with the Dons having dinner. And in his eagerness to sort of share his newfound truth, he turned to one of the dons and spoke about how interesting this is, all the, the cutlery that's laid out in this great formality and the, the dignity and the form of this that I used to find so sterile is actually in its own way, the same kind of purity of the form that I found with the simple people on the island and whatnot. And he unwittingly broke the code of silence, you know, of, about observing the form. And for the rest of the dinner, he was completely ostracized and ignored by the Dons. And he realized that unwittingly he had broken a taboo. Oh, beautiful. And then from that point on, he tried to great bring story. his knowledge back in, in a way in which it could be heard. It's a great story. Yeah. yeah right on. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. It's fun. Yeah. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about the conference you and I were at in Killarney. Um, you had a very, very interesting statement there about what may uh, happen in the future. I remember 25 years ago, we all had a certain amount of optimism, as we've said, that if we all focused together and we got some of the uh, information out, like, for instance, the information on the Vietnam War and 
truth-telling and so on, ultimately we would prevail and the culture would voluntarily shift to a more community, intimacy-based, celebratory kind of style. And, and of course that hasn't happened. In fact, recently Cornell West, you know, wrote in Newsweek about the 80s that the Reagan administration not only signaled the predominance of market culture values for America, but it was the beginning of what's now happening worldwide with the GATT and NAFTA, where economic, tangible uh, values are becoming the rock paradigm of the society and the human values of intimacy or community, spiritual fulfillment, personal growth are having to adapt to these kinds of values. that's just a stage, Duncan. I mean, it's a stage like communism was a stage mm -hmm. because basically it's inherently unstable. It's not, it's not dealing with the truth of the human heart. So ultimately, it's got to change. I mean, we're just watching the agony of the process. The hyperstasis. Of the mind versus the heart, if you will, or whatever mm -hmm. you want to call it. Mm -hmm. yeah. But nonetheless, I recall you're saying at Killarney that you were feeling that perhaps we've got some real social turmoil to go through in order to yeah. get to that breakthrough. And uh, you told a story, I believe, of an Indian teacher you asked about the future. Yeah. Would you share that with us? I didn't ask him. He was uh, dead by the time I came to India. He died much earlier. But at one point, somebody asked him, um, what's the future going to be like? He said, there will come a time when you will walk five miles and you'll see a light, a firelight, and you'll be so happy to know that another human being still exists. And that really chilled my blood when I heard that one. I mean, that's, I mean, without going that far, at least we've got the awareness that the course we're on and the inertia is like cattle running to the edge of the cliff. We've got a tremendous amount of heaviness in store for us because of environment, social problems, et cetera, breakdown of social systems. But that's all a creative moment. I mean, it's whether or not that's a dark moment or that's the moment of transformation. Transformation isn't a rose garden, but it's, uh, uh, and that's why I said at that lecture that our work now as conscious attempt, people attempting to be conscious is to prepare to be able to stay stable in the presence of intense change and chaos. Because that's when uh, the one-eyed man is king or whatever, or the one-eyed woman is queen. Or the end of the silly monkey, as Terence McKenna says, or yeah. whatever, yeah. And so whatever whatever eventuates working on oneself in that particular way, you'll be prepared for- Yeah, you know, you'll really be useful at that moment. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like preparing to play a part. Just like Václav Havel did, interestingly enough, in the yes. dark ages, when it seemed there was no light at the end of the tunnel, he and his friends practiced democracy in private, yes. you know, electing beautiful. each other to things. It was quite a beautiful yeah. story. He's yeah. a very, very fine role model, by the way, of a conscious politician. I think so. Yeah. One of the very few. He and yeah. Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, are the two outstanding political figures in the world today. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening, and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.